All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I will start reading in verse 7 through 12. And just as we were looking at a moment ago, the adversity that God's people overcame in the Old Testament and and Nehemiah and all those who are around him and how we are uh, overcoming adversity even today, we will be looking at in this section how Paul is going to be overcoming adversity and the adversity that he's going to be presented with. So we'll go ahead and read and then we'll pray and get into the text. 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 7, right after where Andy left off. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast something further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who command themselves, commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for these people who want to come here this morning to hear from your word, to learn from your word, to learn from you. God, I pray that as I've been tasked with the responsibility of bringing forth your word, that you would give me wisdom and understanding that you would speak through me and hide me behind your cross, that I would correctly divide your word and that you would speak to us through what you've written down centuries ago. God, we thank you that you are holy, that you are God, that you are the only one who is God, that you are from everlasting to everlasting, that there is no God beside you, and we have the privilege this morning to hear from you, from your word. God, what an amazing thought, what an amazing concept. Help us to cast out any distracting thought. Help us to focus this morning on what it is that you have for us. God, help us to have you high and lifted up in our hearts and our minds that you would be even more precious to us after we leave here this morning than you were when we got here. God, you are so amazing, so incredible, and we are so unworthy and undeserving. We thank you for your love and your grace. Amen. All right, before we jump in and consider the adversity that Paul is going to be faced with, I want us to first consider for a moment the the attitude that you have toward confrontation. What does that bring up within your, your chest? Does your chest tighten when you think of confrontation, of somebody confronting you or perhaps you having to confront somebody else when you get a, a random text from somebody that says just simply, hey, we need to talk, uh, and, and that's it? Because uh, I know that that causes my chest to tighten up a little bit. Um, I have a, a supervisor at work that I have never met face-to-face, but he will always send me the same text, and he'll say, uh, please call me, sir, and, and that's it. Okay, uh, I can do that. And I've gotten 
a little bit used to the routine of getting that very vague, please call me sir, text. But every time I still wonder, well, what is this regarding? What is this pertaining to? Uh, and even within the, the Christian community, when somebody comes up and says, hey, I, uh, I need to bring something to your attention. My immediate response is an, oh, great. Oh, joy, right? Uh, it's one of uh, discomfort and concern and wondering, well, what is this all about? And today we're going to be looking at not only confrontation in our text, but confrontation that gives birth to accusation. And Paul is going to have to deal with this accusation. We've noted before that as we've entered into chapter 10 of this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it takes a little bit of a turn. There's a little bit of a change within this chapter. It's a a new section, a new tone. And we see a lot of we versus them type of language where Paul is really getting into the, the meat of these issues and he's addressing this confrontation that he's found from his opposition. We see that even in what Andy read for us this morning in verses 5 and 6, where he says that we are destroying speculations with every and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So he's taking all these, these thoughts, these uh, bombs that are being lobbed at him, these arrows that are being shot at him, and he's saying that he is uh, submitting those to Christ. He says in the the latter part of that verse, we are taking every thought captive. So these thoughts, these ideas, these worldview issues that are being presented before Paul, he says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take that thought captive and I'm going to present it before the Lord. I'm going to see what the Lord has to say about this. I'm going to test this by the word of truth. That is his approach to these accusations. It's how he answers these accusations. And in the first part of that verse, he says that he is actively seeking to destroy speculations. Again, these worldviews, these ideas that are coming up against him. Paul isn't okay with just letting them sit, with letting them stand. He's going to actively seek to destroy. Take these captive, take them before the Lord, test them against Scripture, against what Christ says and destroy these speculations, these thoughts, these ideas. In 1 Corinthians, when we were going through that, we should have noted, I hope that we noted, that Paul was addressing primarily the internal issues in the church of Corinth. They had a a lot of problems, right? Uh, We can sit back and we can be thankful and count ourselves blessed that that we don't have some of the problems that the church of Corinth had. That was his primary issue, dealing with the internal issues at the church of Corinth. Here in 2 Corinthians, he's taking a little bit of a different approach. He's addressing more of the external issues that the church has because of the influence of the false teachers that we've mentioned several times before, the false apostles that have crept in, and they're beginning to influence the church that Paul has this great love and desire for at Corinth. And Paul has now found himself within the crosshairs of these false teachers. They're going after Paul because they realize that Paul has influence in the city of Corinth, that Paul has influence at this church that he loves and cares for. And they have different 
end goals in mind for this church than what Paul has. Paul wants the best for them. Paul wants them to be holy and to walk in an upright and worthy manner. And these false teachers are really looking out for themselves. And so because they have different goals in mind, they're attacking Paul. They are going after Paul, um, seeking to discredit him in the eyes of the Corinthians. And all throughout this whole book, we can really see that there's been a, a litany of accusations that have been lobbed against Paul. And even in this section this morning, just in these few verses, we're going to look at several of these accusations and see how Paul responds to them. The first accusation is the, the false teachers coming and saying, well, we belong to Christ. And the implication there is that Paul does not belong to Christ. Next, we'll look at how they have a, a special authority. The false teachers are, are claiming this authority, this apostolic authority, and saying that it doesn't belong to Paul. So there is a, an apostolic authority issue at play. And thirdly, in, in verse 8, we'll see that Paul is trying to, they're saying that Paul is trying to destroy you, that he is trying to terrify the Corinthians. And then fourthly, we'll look at the accusation that his personal presence is unimpressive, that his speech is contemptible. And these accusations, they've already started. They've already began. Paul addressed it starting back in verse 1, where he says, I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. So he doesn't necessarily spell it out and say, well, this is what the false apostles say about me. But we see uh, that he is responding to this kind of thought that um, the Corinthians seem to have been told by the, the false apostles that, yeah, Paul, he, he talks a big game when he's writing down his words and letters. But when he's face to face, he's, he's just a man. He's just weak. He's unimpressive. There's nothing great about him. So these accusations have already began. And this morning, we're going to look at Paul and how he, he picks up the gauntlet that's been thrown down. He accepts and embraces this challenge to engage the fight, to answer these challenges that seem to have been placed before him by these false teachers who are uh, vying for influence in the Corinthian church. And that can seem a little bit off-putting to us, especially in our, our 21st century uh, North American mindset, right? That, that Paul would even engage in these kind of discussions and this kind of interaction, these kind of fights with these people. Um, one of the first verses that comes to my mind is uh, one of the Proverbs that say that you should let the lips of another sing your praise. And that's a good thing to do. You don't want to walk around talking about yourself and how great you are, right? And Paul certainly knew that verse and he applied that verse often. Um, but we, we do realize, again, it's not pleasant to have to defend yourself. It's often seen as distasteful or even wrong. Again, we have Old Testament precedence for that. In Proverbs 19.11, it says that it is a man's, it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense, to overlook a transgression. If somebody has sinned against you, um, it's to a man's glory, to his honor, if he doesn't dwell on that, but he overlooks that offense. Uh, perhaps people would point to Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus is our example. Jesus who uh, went to the cross, right? Of course, he is our example, the ultimate example. 
Um, and he did go to the cross, and though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Though he suffered, he didn't threaten. Though he was oppressed and afflicted, he went silently as a sheep led before his shearers, right? These are all true things about Jesus. Um, however, Jesus was by no means a pacifist, right? He didn't just sit back and allow people to do whatever they want, to say whatever they want. Jesus was the first to stand up and to call somebody out, to call them to account, to point them toward the truth. He doesn't call us to be pacifists either. And I fear that many, not necessarily in this church, but within Christianity, we've fallen prey. We have um, capitulated to a, a sort of cultural Christianity where the world tells us, you're just to sit in your corner and be quiet. You are to, to do your thing and, and leave us alone. And no matter how many accusations we lob your way, no matter how many uh, things we come at you and we, uh, we present you with, you're not to address them. You're not to uh, open up your mouth. You're just to sit there and, and be quiet. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what Paul does. He actually takes and he addresses these issues. Back in uh, verse 20 of chapter 5, we're told that we are... Christ's ambassadors. We are to go out into the world and we are to reconcile the world, a, a lost and broken, dying, sinful world, to a holy and righteous God. That is our mandate. That's what we have been called to do, not to sit back quietly and uh, let the world accuse us with whatever accusations may come our way without standing up and, and saying a word. And Paul has already pointed out the shortcoming of the Corinthians in this regard, that they have failed to come to his defense. He said that even though he has this great love and affection for them, that they are restrained in their affections towards Paul, that they have been kind of put to shame in the fact that they haven't stood up to defend Paul. And uh, we certainly don't want to be found in that same kind of situation where we're just uh, embracing this role that has been assigned to us by our world to sit back, shut up, and be quiet. That's not what we're called to. We are called to stand up and to proudly and boldly proclaim the truth of God, even when it comes into opposition for the world. And God forbid that we point to Jesus as our excuse for doing just that, as our reason for failing to engage the world. We don't want to be found in that position. We don't want to use Jesus and his humility, which is true humility, as an excuse for doing that. That is a, a twisting of scripture and a misunderstanding of what it was that Jesus came for and what it was that he has called us to do. And so jumping into our text in verse 7, we should remind ourselves that Paul here is, first of all, writing to the Corinthians, but he is writing uh, most definitely about these false apostles that are impacting and influencing this church that he loves. So verse 7 says, You, Corinthians, are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. So this section, as it begins here in verse 7, uh, it's rather interesting section. It's a little bit unclear as to whether or not this is an indicative or an imperative, whether or not Paul is describing something, uh, as we read it in the New American Standard, that you are looking at things as they are outwardly. That's a, a statement. Or is it an imperative? Is it a command as it's rendered in the... ESV, that look at what is before your eyes. Paul commanding them, you need to open up your eyes, you need to look at what is obvious, look at what is clear, consider the facts. 
Um, and some translations will even pose it as a question. They'll put a question mark at the end of this phrase. And so you may be reading it a little bit differently in whatever translation you have. It might not necessarily match what I'm reading out of here or what's up on the screen. But what Paul is saying here is let's make sure that we're all on the same page. Let's make sure that everything is clear, that we understand each other, that we understand what is true. We need to test truth with uh, what is objectively true. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. Or he might be saying, you need to open up your eyes. You need to see what is plain and what is clear and what is true. And so as Paul begins to address the first of the four accusations that we're going to consider this morning in our text. Um, again, he's addressing this uh, kind of veiled accusation that says that we belong to Christ. And again, the implication is that Paul does not belong to Christ. And so he says, if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this. And when he's speaking of anyone, he says, if anyone, this is not such a veiled reference to the, the false apostles or the super apostles, again, that we've referenced several times throughout this study. And just by way of reminder, if you look over into 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5, this is where we get this term or this phrase super apostles from. It says in 2 Corinthians 11:5, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, whereas uh, several other translations will render it not He's not inferior to the super apostles, those who have this understanding that they are super apostles. Paul, Paul speaking sarcastically here, not saying or, or actually elevating them to the status of super apostle, but that's the, the kind of air of uh, pride that they have about them. And Paul's uh, picking up on that and saying, we're not at all inferior to them. And the matter that he's addressing here is... No small matter at all. This is an incredibly big deal. This is, in fact, the most important question that any of us will ever deal with. It's our, our position in Christ, whether or not we are, in fact, in Christ, if we are in Him. And if we are, how do we know that we are in the Lord? And so these super apostles are incredibly confident that they are in Christ. He says, if anyone, again, I think speaking to these most eminent super apostles, these false apostles, if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself. And so their, their confidence that comes about in Christ, hopefully you noticed how they had this confidence in Christ. It wasn't because of any external thing. It was simply a confidence that they had in themselves. They had this uh, deep-rooted feeling that they were in Christ, right? They, they just knew that they were in Christ. Uh, this self-attestation that they belonged to Jesus. That's all they had. They knew within themselves that they belonged to Christ. They're Christians because they said so. They are the standard. They are the, the authority. They are the rule for whether or not they're in Christ. And these false teachers that Paul is coming up against at Corinth, they're not unlike a bunch of other false teachers that we have even in our world today who are so self-confident, so proud, and so arrogant, um, wanting to, to puff themselves up, wanting people to look to them. They are the, their number one priority. Um, they're looking to make a name for themselves, to elevate their own ministry, uh, concerned with, with number one, right? Just looking out for number one. 
they're in it for the fame, for the, the recognition. They want others to, to point to them. They want others to recognize them, to know them. This is the mentality of these false apostles, of many false apostles across different uh, time and, and space. People who want to look to themselves, want others to look to them, are known and marked by pride. In our Mark Sunday School class, we've been considering this a little bit. Let's look together at Mark chapter 10 and consider uh, this same thing and, and how Jesus presents himself. So in this section, to begin with, Jesus is striking a very serious note with the disciples. He's getting ready to go to the cross, and he's telling the disciples that he's going to the cross. He says in Mark 10, verse 33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Very serious stuff, right? Letting his disciples know what to expect, what's to come. And immediately after that, the response from the disciples in verse 35 says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do something for us, whatever we ask of you. Jesus just told them he's going to the cross. And James and John, they're worried about themselves. And they all begin to, to fight with one another, vying for position in the kingdom, wondering who has the greatest position of authority in the kingdom. That's what they're concerned about. They're concerned, again, with their own self-image, with what people think about them, with what they can get out of this situation. Not at all with the fact that Jesus just told, him, told them that he was about to go to the cross, be crucified, and die. And pick it up with me again in verse 42. This is the response, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. That's how the world acts. That's how the Gentiles act. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And then he points to himself as the example. In verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what set Jesus apart from these other rulers in, in the world. This is what sets Paul apart from these other false apostles. They're, they're looking to themselves. They're wanting people to uh, lift them up on a pedestal. That's not how Paul operated at all. He operated by a different standard. He operated under a, a completely different understanding of what it meant to serve. Look back up at verse 1 of this same chapter in 2 Corinthians 10.1. It says, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's how Paul was coming to them. He was coming to them in the meekness of Christ, in the gentleness of Christ, not in this pomp and circumstance of the false apostles. He didn't want a parade. He didn't want recognition or accolades like these false apostles were wanting. And he didn't want all of the, uh, the attention and power and authority. That's not what he was about. He was about being there to serve this church. We see um, in verse 2 that he didn't even want to be bold in coming to them. He says, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous among them. 
He wanted to come to them in humility, in gentleness. In 2 Corinthians 13, 4, it says, For indeed, he, Jesus, was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Again, the same thought that Jesus, he is strong in his weakness. In his uh, humility is where he gets his might. And we are uh, to be the same. We are to imitate that and emulate that, that we are to find our strength in our weakness and to look to him, not for uh, this strength or or what we can get out of it, but we are to look to him uh, even in, in weakness, considering the humility of Christ and seeking to imitate that ourselves. And Paul says in the latter part of 2 Corinthians 10, 7, that if anyone does have this confidence within himself, this kind of uh, self-made standard that he meets, that he is himself in Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. So Paul says, well, you want to take that standard, that empty, vague standard, uh, we can meet that standard. Even using your standard, we have just enough, just as much ability to open up our mouths and say, oh yeah, we belong to Christ. That's, that's easy enough to say with your mouth, uh, within yourself, that we belong to Christ. And this is uh, just Paul answering and saying, well, according to that standard, I, I meet that standard. This is a, a good apologetic for us to adopt, for us to embrace and to employ as well, that Um, when people, as they often do, set for themselves a a standard and they appeal to their own experience as a final standard and they say, well, I I just know that this is the truth. I'm convinced within myself that this is the truth. We can do just like Paul says and say, well, within yourself, that's an arbitrary standard. I can just as easily say that within myself, I know what the truth is. Within myself, I am convinced of what is true. That is a again, an an arbitrary standard. On Friday at Onion Days, I was speaking with a a 60-year-old man who said that, well, this is my truth. I've heard that many times from younger generation talking about my truth and and your truth and truth being subjective. But again, this man was probably in his 60s and surprised me a little bit that he would uh, use that statement, that kind of reasoning, that kind of logic, that he and I can have different truths. And again, we can employ this same apologetic, the same standard that Paul said and uh, just say, well, my truth says otherwise. How do we differentiate between what your supposed truth is and what my truth is? We need to have an objective standard that is outside of ourselves. And uh, that's, that's what Paul does here. Just as you are in Christ, in yourself, why don't you consider in yourself that we are Christ also, that we belong to Christ according to that faulty standard? When Paul goes on, he begins to address a, another uh, semi-veiled attack against him, accusation against him. And this attack is one that we see all throughout this, this book as a whole, where Paul is addressing this matter of authority. And he says in verse 8, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Again, the 
the super apostles, these false apostles, they had this twisted view of what it meant to have authority over somebody else. And they've taken and they've kind of doctored up uh, another self-imposed standard of authority and how it is that they have their authority. Perhaps you'll recall back in chapter 3, verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, uh, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? So the super apostles have this other arbitrary standard that says you need a, a letter of authority, a letter of recommendation from these other churches that say that you have the authority, the ability to step in and to speak authoritatively. And Paul doesn't have one of those. Uh, they're concerned with this matter of authority. And Paul, being a true apostle of the Lord, he is seeking over and over again to reestablish this authority. And once again, we can broaden out this theme even beyond the super apostles of the first century that were uh, attacking this church at Corinth. And we can understand that this is something that many false teachers are doing, always adding to the gospel, adding different standards, different requirements for the gospel, that somebody has to have a, a certain degree in order to speak authoritatively, or perhaps that somebody has to have a, a special blessing or a, a unique priesthood in order to speak authoritatively, a certain garb of clothing or a certain association with a group or recommendation from a college or a referral from an individual. All these are extra biblical. We don't need any of those to speak the truth. All we got is the Bible. That's all we have. That's all we need. We don't need extra authority from some other outside source. And that's what Paul was saying to them. We don't have a letter of recommendation. You are our letter of recommendation. And Paul is speaking out boldly saying that he has the apostolic authority to do what God has called him to do. He doesn't have to answer to these this group of thugs who's uh, throwing all these accusations against him. Robert Gramacki, in his commentary, he says, as a group, they, that is the, the super false apostles, right? They set up their own convictions and practices as criteria for excellence. Then, if other groups or individuals fail to meet those specifications, they reject them as failures. This is what this this group is doing. They're saying, well, this is a standard that you have to meet because we decided, because we said. We have Christ within ourselves because we know. We, we just know, right? We have this, this feeling within ourselves. We have this unique, special knowledge, and Paul is outside of that. And they're saying, we have this authority, this special authority. We have this commendation from these other churches, and Paul doesn't. They're attacking Paul. They're uh, coming against him in this very um, crafty sort of way. Well, Paul, he, he doesn't play by that game, right? He doesn't have this self-imposed authority. It's not something that he's just made up himself. Look, at me, look with me at Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says that, I would have you to know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't just make up this authority, Paul didn't just make up this gospel. He didn't receive it from anybody else. He received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He's able to point outside of himself to Jesus and say, this is where I get my authority. This is where I get the gospel that I preach. In 1 Corinthians 15, 
Uh, he says, I preach to you that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, he was risen again on the third day according to the Scriptures. He has something he's pointing to, the Scriptures. And then he goes on to say in that same passage that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500 people. They're still alive. You can go and talk to them right now. He says that you appeared, that Jesus appeared uh, to all these different people. And then um, to James and to all the apostles. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 through 10, Paul goes on and he says that he appeared to me also. Can we throw that up on the screen? 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Do we have that in there? Perhaps not. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. He says, last of all, he has appeared to me as one who is untimely born. For I am the least of the apostles. That was Paul's understanding of himself. Not that he was the, the preeminent apostle. He wasn't a super apostle. He's the least of the apostles. Not fit to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. That was the, the understanding of, that Paul had. He, he was certainly an apostle, but not because of any of his own doing. It was because of what God had done in him, because of what Christ had done for him. And in the next chapter that we will get to before next year, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, um, Paul spends much of that chapter defending his apostleship. And in verse 12, he explains why he's doing that. He says, but, I am, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And so Paul, again, lifting up himself, not to, to puff himself up, but so that they can see that this is where the true authority from God lies, and that these other false apostles might not be given any uh, accountability or any credence for the things that they're proposing. So Paul has already uh, confronted these accusations coming against him. He's saying, well, by your same standard, I'm in Christ as well. And he's going to go on and uh, give a, a better defense as to why. He's saying that he does have this apostolic authority to, to speak into their lives. And then he goes on and he then addresses this third accusation that Paul is trying to destroy the Corinthians, that he is trying to terrify the Corinthians. And he says that the word that was given to him in verse 8 by the Lord, it was for building them up, not for destroying them, that he will not be put to shame. He says, for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. Paul was not into tearing things down. He wasn't into destroying people. That's not what Paul did. Paul was a, a builder. Paul was a starter. Paul was somebody who came along. He, he began that church. We'll look at this next week, how Paul is the one who came to them. He is the first one who uh, came amongst the Corinthians, and he doesn't desire just to stop with the Corinthians. He wants to go even beyond the Corinthians to, to do even greater things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul addresses this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was the one who caused the growth. And in verse 10, that same chapter, 
He says that it's according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. That's what, what Paul did. He was a planter of that church. He was the one who laid the foundation. He wasn't there to destroy them. He wasn't there to, to tear it down. He was there to build and to continue to build. And we see in Romans 15, his plans and his desire to continue to build even after that. In Romans 15, 20, he says, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Then he goes on to talk about his desire to go to Rome, his desire to go to Spain, and to continue building and pouring into people, not to tear them down, not to destroy people. Paul was somebody who came in to, to build up. He wanted to pour into people. And they claimed in verse 9, uh, perhaps they, they claimed, but Paul's concern was that they, the Corinthians, not be terrified by his letters. It says that, I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. Paul did have some, some strong, weighty, heavy letters, but they weren't for the purpose of terrifying them. Paul had no uh, misunderstandings that he could scare the Corinthians into any kind of repentance. We considered back in chapter 7 the difference between true godly repentance and worldly repentance. Paul didn't want them just to be scared. He didn't want them to be terrified. He wanted their hearts to be changed. He wanted them to come to a true understanding of uh, their position before God. He wasn't trying to, to scare these people. And anybody who truly knew who Paul was, they would have known that this isn't his, his MO. That's not how he operates. Paul had a, a love for this church and he wanted them to reciprocate this love to him. And the, the fourth accusation that we see here in this passage is in verse 10. It's really rather elementary on the same level of uh, I know you are, but what am I type of argument, right? Um, this guy's funny looking type of argument. They say here in verse 10 that his letters are weighty and strong, which is interesting. They're unable to deny the authority of his letters, the weightiness of his letters. Um, they, they speak for themselves. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Uh, they're just lobbying these, not only accusations, but they're lobbying these, um, not complaints. I, I can't think of the word. They're, they're just making fun of him, right? Um, they're just being rude, being mean to Paul, really, saying that he's not a good speaker. That, yeah, maybe he says good stuff, but he doesn't say it in a good way. Um, his letters, again, contained undeniable power and authority. They couldn't combat his letters, and so they combated the way that he spoke, the, the appearance of the man as he was speaking, as he was delivering this message to them. His, his rhetorical ability is what they were combating. They were looking for more of a, an Apollos type of character, right? Apollos, who's described back in the book of Acts as an eloquent man who was a, a good teacher, who spoke out boldly. Um, they're coming up against Paul with these really, again, uh, rather elementary type of accusations, just making fun of him. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says that 
their proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. And I really love what he says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He's talking about how he didn't come to them with these persuasive words of wisdom. He wasn't trying to uh, appeal to their desire for, again, this great rhetoric. That's what the Corinthians wanted. They wanted somebody who could come in and speak eloquently. And the false apostles, they were uh, really grabbing onto this and trying to capitalize on this for their own selfish gain. And Paul says, that's not how I came to you. I came to you in humility, not in these uh, great words, this great kind of rhetoric, because I wanted to make Christ the, the authority. I wanted to lift him up and, and put himself low. And so, again, the, the false apostles, they're really trying to capitalize on uh, all these silly, foolish things, these accusations that are, they are baseless. They have no grounding, no footing. And Paul is here taking the initiative and he's being willing to confront these accusations. And he's doing so in, uh, in line with Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. This is his methodology for how he's attacking the accusations that are coming up against him. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, so that he not be wise in his own eyes. And so these enemies of Paul are using their own crooked ruler, right? This crooked stick that is warped and out of shape, uh, that has its own measurement. They're using this measuring rod to, to measure themselves. And Paul says, nope, we're, we're not doing that. We're not going to use this made-up standard that you have Christ within yourself. We're not going to use this made-up standard that you have to have these letters of commendation from someone else, that you have to have a, a certain level, certain degree, or ability to, to speak with a certain level of rhetoric and um, eloquence. Paul says, that is a, a faulty standard. Let me first take that standard. I'll, I'll measure myself up against that standard just to show you how faulty it is, just, just, just to show you that that measuring rod is uh, it's not valid. Right? And he says, oh yeah, I, I'm in Christ too, if that's the standard. If it's just you know, what is within yourself. But then Paul says, we're going to break that standard. We're going to take that measuring rod, that stick, and we're going to get rid of it because there is uh, no absolution within that standard. It's a subjective standard. If there is uh, no objectivity, then we're just uh, appealing to our own understanding of truth, of reality. If there's no absolute above society, then society becomes the absolute. If there's no absolute above the individual, then the individual becomes the absolute. And Paul's saying that that's not what our absolute standard is. Our absolute standard is the truth of God's word. What does God say? What is uh, lining up with reality? What is true according to the word of God? Again, Paul um, says in, in verse 11 that he's going to call this out. He's not going to let it fly. He says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we also are indeed when present. So he's telling them, uh, I don't just talk a big game, but I carry a big stick too. 
And I'm not just, I'm not fronting, but I can back it up. I can take it to the bank. Uh, don't bet against me because you're going to lose. Just like he said back in verse 6, that he is ready to punish all disobedience. He's not just going to sit back and let these accusations fly without uh, addressing them, without confronting what it is that people are saying about him. And he doesn't just take that, that faulty standard that they have and say, well, that's not okay just to measure yourself by yourself. But he presents them with a, a superior standard, with a better standard. He says that he has a commendation that's not found within himself, but a commendation that is from above. Because he knows that God knows the heart of a man. He doesn't just look at the, the exterior of a man, but he knows the heart of a man. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, But to me it is a, a very small thing that I may be examined by you, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul appeals to the Lord and what the Lord says, not his own self-examination. And he does this all throughout this book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5, he says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. That is completely different from what the apostles were saying, the false apostles were saying. Or in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth. He's appealing to truth. We are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Not just saying what we are by ourselves. He's appealing to other men's consciences in the sight of God. We see the same thing in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you. And then uh, he, he keeps this up. Chapter 8, verse 20 taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. We have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And then chapter 12, verse 6, he says, For I do not wish to boast, and I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than what he sees in me or hears in me. Paul, all throughout this book, he's appealing not to himself. He's appealing to the consciences of other men. He's appealing to what God says about him. He's appealing to the truth, this higher standard, this better standard than just simply saying, well, I know this to be true. Paul's saying that's not the game we play. That's not how we know what truth is. Truth isn't true for one person, not for another person. Truth is absolutely true for everybody as it's defined by God. And then he um, talks about how he is a, a fruitful servant of the Lord. He's not in Christ just because he says he's in Christ, but he has documented evidence for the fact that he is in Christ, that he has been saved and redeemed and regenerated and made into a new person by the Lord. Jesus himself said that every good tree bears good fruit. You will know them by their fruits. And I want to close out this morning by looking at Paul and how he 
gives a, a list of his commendations. He's not commending himself. He's not just saying, I know within myself. He says, God is a standard. There is a truth outside myself. Plus, he has uh, these, this fruitful ministry that he can point to. In chapter 6, starting in verse 3, it says that he is giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. That's the, the main point. He says we are not just commending ourselves, but they are servants of God. And then listen to this list. He says, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distress, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Paul isn't just making up a, a random standard. He isn't just out there making claims. He is saying that he knows truth because God has revealed it to him, not because he has established a standard that he can meet. We have to be willing and ready to address and to confront accusations that come up against us. We do it not by our own standard, not by our own understanding, but by what God has revealed to us in his word, his holy and infallible word. That needs to be a standard that we hold up above ourselves and above others. That has to be the standard that we use to determine what is true, what is right, what is wrong, not what we feel, not what's within us as the false apostles did. Let's pray. God, this is a lot easier to, to say than to do, but we pray that you would give us the, the wisdom and the ability to hold up your word as truth, that we wouldn't become a law unto ourselves, that we wouldn't become a, a or hold up a, a standard that is of our own making, of our own imagination, but that we would submit ourselves to your truth, that we would call others, even others who are bringing accusations against us, to submit to your truth. God, help us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, that we would be bold to proclaim your truth and even to uh, call out a, a world that is in opposition to you, those who are at enmity with you, that we would hold them to the same standard, the standard that you have placed before us, a standard of your truth. Help us to speak your truth in gentleness and respect that we would do so in love uh, without compromising the ministry that you've given us as your ambassadors, as your representatives. God, help us to serve you well. Amen.